Hello everyone, my name is Bea Spadaccini and I manage the Internews Health Journalism Network. Thank you so much for tuning in to Rooted in Health, a podcast by the Health Journalism Network. In this episode, we're going to hear from Irene Scott, who's the Senior Humanitarian Community Engagement Project Manager here at Internews. Recently, Irene has published a fascinating paper on the dangers and limitations of social media listening. This paper was published in the March issue of The Humanitarian Leader, a journal of the Center for Humanitarian Leadership at Deakin University in Australia, which is where Irene is based. So we all know that the COVID-19 pandemic has created an overwhelming amount of information on what to do and not to do to protect oneself against this rapidly mutating virus. Confusion about sometimes contradicting health messages and distrust of authorities and also of media have contributed to fewer rumors and misinformation about COVID-19 and vaccines. Along with the pandemic, we've witnessed an infodemic. So social media has played a major role in amplifying false information about the virus and what to do to protect oneself. This is why I've been so keen to speak with Irene about our paper, which is, by the way, an outcome of her graduate thesis. I hope you find this conversation useful and the topic as interesting as I have. So let's dive right in. Can you explain for our listeners what does social media listening mean and how does it happen? It sounds a little bit like eavesdropping and it has seems to have a negative connotation, but tell us more. Yeah, I, I can see how it could sound a little bit negative because it is really listening to the community. But basically what it's doing is trying to look at what people post in social media spaces um, and trying to use that as a way to understand the community. So it started out really as a marketing tool. So if someone had a business, perhaps they were selling a soft drink and they wanted to know what did their customers think and, and what did people in general think about their product, they would use social media listening as a way to see what people thought you know did they think their drink was too sugary did they love the packaging were they um, you know what kind of demographic was drinking their drink and talking about it online so it was very much started uh, as something to support business I would say in the marketing of business but humanitarians have looked at it and said and and media as well and also researchers to say well okay in in many ways it can help us to understand people's attitudes towards a product but it can also help us understand people's attitudes towards lots of different things. The pandemic is one, you know, what do they think about vaccines? What do they think about the, perhaps the government restrictions that are in place in the countries where they live? Um, it could also be used to think, to try and understand the community's opinions and what they think about a whole range of different um, topics. Um, and so the way that it works is quite often um, someone might do social listening either through a manual collection and that just basically means you have a social media monitor who is scrolling through Twitter and through Facebook and through Clubhouse and you know whatever the platform is and looking for posts about the topic that they're interested in so that's that's one way that it can be done another way is that researchers might use a tool that can scrape you know which basically just means pull out a whole heap of data about a particular topic so they might for example go into twitter and say we want to collect every single tweet that uses the word 
banana in this three month period and they'll pull it all out into a big data set and then research the data set in that way and then the other way that it's done is quite often using some tools which are uh, fueled by AI and they they help to also pull huge amounts of data from multiple social media platforms at a time um, so that you can use keyword searching and other search techniques to be able to really hone in on the issues that you're interested in. So is it just the posts or also all the comments that are under the posts, for instance? Yeah, so it 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 depends. That gets into kind of the, the technical area. Um, so when we're looking at Twitter, that's a platform that is really quite open. So, you know, you can pull the, the tweets and the, the threads and the comments um, and everything is quite accessible. When we're looking at a platform like Facebook, which, um, you know, is one of them, also one of the most popular platforms in the world, I would say, um, it really is pretty restricted in what it can pull and where it can pull data from. But it basically would be pulling just from really specific parts of the site. So it, it, it can't go into my feed, for example. You know, if I'm going on Facebook every day and posting a photo of my lunch and adding a little message or something like that, it, it can't access uh, things from my private feed. Uh, it can only access from, you know, business pages, pro, um, people with a big profile, a celebrity, you know, those more open pages. Interesting. I know you work in the humanitarian sector and you've used this tool or the humanitarian community has used this tool to listen in to what the community says and responds to, especially in times of crisis. Is there a particular point in time or a specific humanitarian crisis where the use of social media listening and technology in general began to define and inform the humanitarian response? Wow. I mean, it's a big question. I, I'm not sure if there was a specific moment, but I would say that, you know, social media became, started to inform humanitarian response when social media started to become popular with people. You know, it's, it's been informing humanitarian response for a really long time. Um, and it's used in a whole lot of different ways. You know, humanitarian responders, they often come in when there has been some sort of a crisis. So whether it's a, a natural disaster, perhaps the outbreak of conflict, the outbreak of a, a serious uh, disease, um, that's, that's usually when humanitarians uh, start their work. And when a community is experiencing a disaster, it's usually experienced quite socially. If there uh, has been a tsunami in a city, people want to talk about it. And one of the ways that they want to talk about it is, of course, face-to-face, -face, you know, talking to their neighbor, talking to their friends, family, uh, but also online. You know, that's another place where we share our thoughts, our emotions, our heartbreaks, the photos of what we've seen. Um, you know, we experience it socially in this space as well. And I would say that you know, in humanitarian crises, um, there's lots of ways that we have used social media to inform the way that we do our work. So they are often the, the place where we first find out that something has happened, you know, whether it's someone on the scene, whether that person is media or someone that, you know, is a, is a witness to whatever has happened, they're likely to post something on social media straight away. So it might be the thing that lets us know that something has happened in the first place. When we're responding to emergency as well, social media is a really great tool for us to 
understand where there has been damage. So for example, if there's an earthquake, social media can help us to map uh, where buildings might have um, collapsed, where people might be trapped, where people need help and, and where we can we can step in to try and provide that help. In, in a longer term, social media can also give us an idea about perhaps when there's rising prejudice towards a particular group. So we can use it to track hate speech and prejudice towards particular um, individuals or groups in society. And of course, it's a place where we share information with community as well. So it might be a place where we say, hey, there is a distribution of food and fresh water at the corner of these two streets on this day. It, you know, if this is something you need, please come um, and access this aid. So it's, it's also a tool that we use to communicate with disaster affected communities as well. And of course, to listen to them. So I would say, yeah, social media is, is a huge part of humanitarian response now, purely because for so many of us, social media is such a big part of our lives. For sure. And I've noticed that, for example, maybe several years ago, some social media platforms like Facebook, people could mark themselves safe in a cry have you yeah. know that people would pop up and say this happened yeah mark safe mark safe and i noticed that that was happening more and more but let's go back to this paper that was published very recently in the new humanitarian and that you publish and it's based on your thesis and you really talk about the dangers of listening to social media and how it may further exclude already vulnerable and marginalized groups especially in communities in crisis can you provide us with some examples that you have come across your research or even your work as a humanitarian where this type of listening excluded some people or some groups of people or some communities because of the nature of how the listening is done? Yeah, for sure. Um, perhaps I'll give a couple of maybe definitions first, because I know for people that don't work in the humanitarian world when we use words like vulnerable they might be um, interpreted quite differently you know it's quite a common common word used in humanitarian response but it, it, it can mean a whole range of things in in lots of different contexts so i would say in a humanitarian response uh, when we use the word vulnerable where especially in the context of the work that internews does where we're really trying to make sure that everyone has access to uh, good quality information so that then they can make great decisions for themselves, you know, to really sum up what we do as an organization. When we're talking about vulnerable groups, we're often talking about groups in society that might find face more barriers to access really good quality information or might face more barriers and having their voice heard. Um, you know, they might be a little bit silenced in society. So some of those groups might be, depending on the context, and every context is different. It might be older people, it might be LGBTQI plus communities, it might be people living with a disability, perhaps um, ethnic or linguistic minorities. Um, and so they're some of the vulnerable groups that we're often thinking about. Um, and I would say it's very context specific. So social media doesn't necessarily mean that um, it always excludes vulnerable groups. And mm -hmm. it, I think we've actually seen in lots of countries, it's been an amazing platform for vulnerable groups to have their voice heard. But really in the humanitarian context, they're the kind of groups we're talking about. And when I'm talking about social listening, sorry for all this preamble, but I am getting No, no, there. no, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. Thank you for that. And for social listening, I'm definitely not saying it's, it's bad as a methodology. Internews um, also uses social listening. We love it. It's great. It can be really useful. What we're trying to encourage is a greater discussion about um, for people to think about what, what are you trying to do with the data that you're collecting with social mm -hmm. media? 
Do you understand its limitations? And are there ways that you can um, check your data from social media with other sources to make sure it is more representative? Mm -hmm. so, um, so when I was writing in my paper about some of the ways that it um, excludes vulnerable groups or it has the potential to, I guess, further silence their voices, I'm talking really specifically about some of these AI tools. You can go into the tool, say, I want to look at these different platforms. These are the keywords I'm interested in. Bring me all the data. And they can be really easy to use. They're very accessible and they bring you huge amounts of data. Um, and that's why I give this a, a little bit of a, a, a warning because quite often when you have a huge amount of data that's presented to you, you can easily get under the misconception that it, it is representative of a whole community. So these, these are the, some, some of the reasons why I think some of the more vulnerable people might be missed out sometimes. One is a really simple one, um, and I think this is one that everyone would understand in their context, is that not everyone is on social media. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this is not a groundbreaking statement. I think everyone knows in their country that not every single person in that country is on social media. Um, so it's really good to think about in your particular context, who has access to social mm -hmm. media, you know, in terms of a data connection, maybe it's a smartphone, you know, the ability to actually use social media. Um, even in a relatively wealthy country, not everyone uses mm -hmm. social media. So even if you have the data co connection, you might choose not to, it might not be your thing for a whole range of reasons. And there are estimates that even in America, there's a hundred million people not on social media. Wow. hundred million, that's huge, right? And when you put on top of that, people that might also face barriers using social media, mm -hmm. you know, older people who might find it difficult to, to read the text, uh, might find it difficult to use as a platform, people with communication disabilities, a whole range of other reasons why people might not use it. Um, and then you look at countries where a digital connection is a struggle. So in Afghanistan, for example, there's only about 9% of the population on social media. And of that 9%, they're mostly mostly in capital cities because that's where you'll get a stronger internet connection and only about 16% of those are women. So it's a very tiny slice of society that you're listening to when you listen to the, the social media data there. So that's one. So the digital divide is, is a big reason why I think, you know, a lot of vulnerable people might not get their voice heard on there. Another big one is language. So a lot of these um, AI tools that, that are able to scrape huge amounts of social media data for you, they learn languages in a way. So the way that they learn languages is you feed them with lots of language data, and then that tool learns to understand English. It learns to understand words, it understands sentiment and emotion and all of these great things about the language. So the only way it can understand languages is by being fed with lots and lots and lots of data. It, it's very hungry. <laughs> and that also means that for the big languages like English, Spanish, French, you know, Arabic, mm -hmm. the tools understand these languages really well because they've had a lot to eat. Of languages where mm -hmm. um, they have been fed less data, they really struggle. Um, so you can you you will find that there are languages out there that are spoken by millions of people, um, but there hasn't necessarily been the the, the tech development, let's say, or um, maybe the the commercial reasoning to feed these tools with the data of those languages and so it's simply the tool simply won't understand them so i'm using afghanistan as an example as well i promise i have others um, the tools often don't understand dari and pashto very well and there are you know more than 20 million people that live in afghanistan that speak these languages um, the tools simply really can't understand the language it can't understand sentiment um, and it really struggles these are the mm. ai tools so that's really interesting mm. They're more they're yeah. fed, literally, in terms of information, the smarter they become. 
yeah yeah they they learn in a way they, you can um you can talk about it as you might have heard it talked about as machine learning or natural language processing um the way they start to understand languages is by being fed it's called strings of data but basically fed lots and lots and lots of sentences in that language so so that the tool starts to understand how is a sentence constructed um, what do these words mean in this context um, it learns a whole range of like amazing things and there are some great organizations out there like Translators Without Borders that are really trying to work uh, with the tech industry as well on trying to make sure these tools do start to understand some of these, uh, I, I don't want to call it a minority language when millions of people speak it, but in, in the tech world, that's what it's referred to as. So trying to make sure that there is um, tech support behind trying to build up the data sets for these languages so that you can have more reliable tools to understand you know, what are seen as minority languages. And then, I mean, language is also a problem because there are lots of languages out there that are not formalized. So they might be uh, mostly an oral language, so a spoken language, and it is written, but it might not be written in an in a, in a established way. Mm -hmm. So it might be written a little bit phonetically and people kind of, you know, vibe with it as they're going and it might right. be spelled slightly differently each time so it also of course struggles with those languages and then you have other languages like um, Arabic where there's so many different dialects and quite often these tools are very comfortable with um, modern standard Arabic which is I guess you could think of um, as like university Arabic in some contexts, you know, every country is right. different. In Lebanon, for example, people love to text using Arabic, but they, they use um, something called Arabizi that's kind of a mixture of English characters and numbers to then express Arabic words. <laughs> so the tools as well struggle with the other ways we like to communicate language that, you know, might be a little bit context specific or might be specific to, you know, younger people, for example. Mm -hmm find their own slang and ways of using language. This concludes part one of our conversation with Irene Scott on social media listening. Part two is available on the next episode.